Surgery is effective, but there's a big problem of recurrence. In five years after surgery, about half of them will have their symptoms recur. So this means you have to, that the patient has to go the second surgery or third surgery or even fourth surgery. In this case, it's very, very uh, bad because each surgery will, uh, will increase the risk of um, you know, damage and also adhesion. Adhesion itself is, can be a, a big, uh, serious issue. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. Today, joining me from Shanghai in China is Professor Sungwei Gao. Good morning, Professor Gao. Uh, good morning, Nathan. Uh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. So you're a professor of gynecology. You've published some amazing research, I think, in new ways of looking at endometriosis. Today, we're here to talk about endometriosis and some of the, as I said, the novel ways of understanding it and hopefully treating it because it's a, a terrible affliction that uh, to date has been hard to manage. Um, so before we dive into all your new theories and treatments, can you perhaps give, a, give us a bit of a um, background sketch on um, who you are, what you've looked at and yeah, uh, why you're interested in endometriosis? Okay, I, I'm actually, uh, I, I actually was uh, trained as a, a statistical geneticist uh, at the University of Washington in Seattle. And at the time that uh, the Human Genome Project was in, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's peak and actually uh, joined the, uh, the, the search for complex diseases, uh, genes. And at the time that the, when the genome, uh, human genome is actually near completion, at, I think it's around 2000. And there's no, some uh, new technologies out there and also at that time, I realized that the many complex diseases such as endometriosis um, will have a very complex uh, genetic uh, background. It may not be hereditary, uh, although uh, they, they seem to run in families. Uh, that's because the uh, many um, lifestyles and diet and traditions, and actually they also run, uh, tend to run in families and so our uh, risk factors. So in this case, I mean, I think that the probably the, the, the best example will be the uh, Kuru disease, something that I'm sure that you'll be aware of. Uh, the actually relevant families, uh, people initially thought it was actually a genetic disease, hereditary disease, they were in families, but it turned out it's actually uh, because they consume that the, the dead people, actually the brain. We harbors the uh, virus that actually spreads the uh, disease. So, at that time, actually did some. Uh, as, as my background is uh, <clears throat> statistics genetics, I actually did some theoretical work and and actually realized that the um, <clears throat> things are actually more complex. Well, one thing we tend to you know that uh, try to decompose a trait into genetic component environment component, but the actuality is very difficult to tease out genetic component or the nature versus nature, mm. simply because nature and uh, <clears throat> nurture, they actually tend to interact in a very complex, time-dependent ways. So in this case, it's, it's, you cannot kind of simply say 30% is due to environment, 70% is due to genes. So, and also at that time, there several other things um, that, that actually inspired me. And I actually read a lot of th things in the complex theories, emerging theories. And also at that time, uh, Barker's hypothesis uh, was proposed. Uh, David Barker uh, of England essentially proposed that the uh, <clears throat> many uh, uh, people, they, when they had a, because they had a uh, uh, adverse uh, de developmental uh, trajectory, 
uh, either in utero or in early childhood, and later on in life, they actually developed metabolic diseases. So, for example, uh, heart conditions and also uh, diabetes, and that has been actually proven again and again. Mm. And that essentially means that the nurture or development can actually trump uh, genetics. So, and then I learned about epigenetics and looks like that the genome actually is not static. It can be constantly uh, erased, erased and also rewritten. So epigenetics is also very important. So, and then um, and when the uh, medical college of Wisconsin was trying to recruit me, I actually insisted maybe I should uh, have a wet lab and uh, try to do something hands-on and use my thinking and try to do, uh, <clears throat> do some complex diseases at that time because the gene array, gene uh, expression array was in, in vogue. And I thought maybe instead of uh, gene, uh, doing genotyping, essentially the, uh, <clears throat> determining that the uh, genetic background, we can actually see how the gene is actually functioning. And then, then actually determines the the risk of uh, developing a, a complex diseases, and they agreed. Actually, they they, they found me a wet lab, plus a, a one postdoc, and actually that's how I got started. And my first um, disease choice is actually a dermatological disease. I hooked up with a dermatologist, and uh, the thinking is, I think that the in order to do gene um, expression studies, you need to have tissues. And I think that the, uh, you know, skin is actually is a tissue that would be easily to um, harvest, uh, to, to, to obtain. But at that time, actually, the, uh, the several things that uh, uh, the, the project didn't fly, and, um, and I settled down to uh, endometriosis. Uh, for one thing that I try to avoid uh, cancers uh, because, you know, as a small lab, you cannot compete with big labs with deep pocket. And I think that's a, mm. and the disease is complex enough. Uh, not much, uh, you know, good work has been done. And also, I think that uh, it's, some, it's an area that uh, you can do something and leave some marks. I mean, that's something that uh, I, 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 you know, choose to do. Mm. And my first paper on uh, endometriosis was published in 2003, so that's how I, um, I got started. Wow. So I essentially is a, is a human geneticist turned uh, um, molecular or cellular biologist, so to speak. And yeah, well, I think we'll, we'll maybe touch upon this um, Barker hypothesis later on. That's the Doe had, if I recall correctly, the developmental origins of health and disease, which suggests there's some... right Doha, it's a Doha. Yes. yes, yes. So, as a geneticist, did you choose endometriosis? Did you do a, like a, a scan of the literature back then, and was it because there was a genetic link or a lack of a genetic link in endometriosis that fueled your interest, or it was just because it was a a uh, complex disease with an unmet need that probably, um, as you mentioned, you couldn't compete with the bigger organizations looking after cancer. What was it, um, you know, biologically around, about endometriosis? At that time, there's already uh, several papers on the, you know, try to find genes for endometriosis. Actually, in 2005, I think, it's, um, there's a meeting and they held in uh, D.C., Washington. Um, the... Uh, at that time, there was a, key, a keynote speaker, and he proclaimed that within five years, we'll find a, a disease susceptibility genes for um, endometriosis. And then we can use it to uh, screen uh, people, and we can actually diagnose disease, and eventually we can find a cure. So that's 2005, and now yeah. it's 2022, you know, so it's, it's actually um, nothing. Yeah. So you've published a bit about this, and before we dive into all the, the nuts and bolts and the physiology, it might be good just to paint the picture of, of this unmet need in endometriosis, and it's probably no surprise to many practitioners and patients about the um, lack of efficacy of, of, 
um, all sorts of modalities, particularly conventional medicine. So can you just describe a bit of the landscape of some of the um, treatments and their their benefits, but also their, their shortcomings? Describe this unmet sure. need in endometriosis. Yeah, of course. The For one thing, it's actually endometriosis is a pretty prevalent disease. Uh, it's actually... Um, Although we don't know exactly its uh, incidence because all the diagnostic uh, procedures are a bit uh, invasive, it has to be uh, the gold standard is actually laparoscopy. I mean, it's better than laparotomy, but it's still it's invasive and carries certain uh, uh, risk of morbidity and even mortality, rarely, of course. And imaging can help, uh, but to a certain extent. Uh, so some other some subtypes of endometriosis cannot be determined at all by uh, imaging uh, techniques, and there has been uh, a, a great deal of efforts put on to, um, finding the uh, biomarkers for endometriosis. I think that so far as over 400 papers have been published, and well over 300 different markers being proposed, but none of them, unfortunately, can be used clinically. So, and for treatment, uh, sur- surgery is, is an effective uh, in relieving pains. And there are also some uh, drugs, um, but mostly hormonal drugs. Essentially, it's, it's um, try to um, induce a pseudo-pregnancy state, uh, essentially to stop menstruation, and then uh, stops the bleeding because the disease is considered to be estrogen dependent. And so the, the idea is essentially you actually, uh, you uh, reduce the estrogen, either uh, reduce the production or you actually block it, the action. Now, because estrogen actually is um, useful um, by normal physiology, if you reduce the um, uh, estrogen level, uh, to a very low level, that's actually will do some harm. That's actually what uh, where the uh, side uh, side effects actually yes um, comes about. So the most of the drug is essentially either progestins. It's actually uh, progesterone, uh, or the deri- it's a derivative, and also could be the uh, estrogen um, to try to block the uh, production of estrogens. Uh, to essentially block the secretion of estrogens. Uh, also, there's a, at, at one time, there's some um, androgen uh, analog, uh, which is called uh, dinosaur, but actually uh, it's very effective. But on the other hand, it causes many um, side effects, for example, um, you know, hair, uh, and also, um, you know, it's um, make your skin is actually a little bit... Um, kind of rough and it's actually so people actually don't don't, don't like it. So so there's uh, one drug been developed in uh, East Germany uh, and then it's marketed by uh, Bayer. It's called Dinogest. It's actually the newer generation of um, of uh, uh, progestins and this one has been essentially the um, is the uh, kind of a, a, a very effective uh, but you have to use it for a long time, uh, a long term actually, but this also has some side effects. Um, and also there's, uh, there's a phenomenon called progestin resistance. A certain proportion of patients, they simply do not respond to uh, progestin treatment. So in this case, they actually have to um, find the other ways, for example, surgeries, which is actually, again, invasive uh, and uh, carries certain risk of comorbidities. So, right, and you you've spoken about the research around this innovation drought. It sounds like all the the treatments to date, like at least pharmaceutical, are on managing the sex steroid hormones. Have there been any other developments um, around inflammation or whatever other other sort of factors or drivers in endometriosis? Plenty, actually. Um... For example, uh, people have been used uh, using the recombinant interleukin-2, essentially try to uh, combat inflammation because the disease is actually considered um, uh, both estrogen-dependent but as well as uh, inflammatory. And 
of course, uh, one thing I, I forgot to mention that, um, is that surgery is, uh, is uh, effective, but there's a big problem of um, recurrence. Uh, in five years after surgery, about half of them will have their symptoms recur. So this means you have to, that the patient has to go the second surgery or third surgery or even fourth surgery. So it's a, in this case, it's a very, very uh, kind of bad because each surgery will, uh, will increase the risk of um, you know, damage and also adhesion. Adhesion itself is, can be a, a big, uh, serious issue. So now, um, just to, to continue, that the, there have been a lot of efforts being uh, tried to develop non-hormonal drugs. And try, for one thing that's been uh, proposed to use the anti-inflammatory drugs, and one is use the recombinant uh, interleukin-2, the other one, but actually uh, the results has been uh, not very good. The first few uh, papers reported tantalizingly good result, but the the last you know paper essentially says it's it's um it's not it's it's, it's just as good as the placebo. Now right. people also use the uh, um, the um, TNF alpha uh, recombinant antibody, and it's been used to treat um, uh, other diseases, but when the people actually used it to treat uh, deep endometriosis, which is a, a, a very diff, a difficult form of endometriosis. Actually, they found that the that the results is actually is not very good. And right. there's also some other failures. For example, people, you uh, the thinking is, what if we actually um, to block the estrogen? Uh, using the block uh, because the estrogen is activated uh, the is um, the the action is uh, through their receptors. What about we use the uh, receptor inhibitor, and people actually use the uh, um, estrogen receptor antagonist. Uh, it's actually called relaxing, and the results is it seems to be that if you uh, give the drug to a patient, it actually exacerbated the uh, the symptoms. Wow! So it's, it's a quite surprise. And these are actually published studies. There's some other, other um, couple of uh, published studies, and but if you read um, the uh, all the registered uh, trials on um, uh, uh, some registries, for example, clinical uh, clinical you can see some of the drugs been um, you know trials been initiated, but later on actually they actually um, they folded and they are withdrawn or terminated without any results for those who successfully um, completed, but they never reported their outcome. And that that's I think that's a, a clear sign that the this results mm. actually not very very good because the the sponsors they spent a huge amount of uh, money on supporting uh, clinical trials which are very expensive and in the end they uh, decided not to publish the results and actually that's that's a good sign that the um, you know it's, it's simply either the drug has failed yeah. in efficacy or because of the uh, uh, unacceptable um, side effects or both yeah right. so that's, yeah. that's the, uh, is that the the file drawer effect they talk about where you you sort of right. file away that the bad in studies. In fact, that I actually I wrote uh, with my colleagues at uh, three or four papers on the um, uh, opaqueness of the uh, clinical trials in uh, endometriosis and call for more transparency. Mm. So, um, but still, uh, little has been changed, unfortunately. That's mm. um, unfortunate. So you. We'll get into your model that you suggest. So before we do that, um, and this may help potentially explain some of the, the failures to date of the the uh, traditional, if you want to call it that, therapies around endometriosis. There's a couple models of endometriosis that are uh, championed, um, you know, both by laymen and, and in the in the literature and retrograde flow and and yeah is inflammation too broad of a, a concept? So can you describe some of the the prevailing theories and um, if you think they're valid or, or need updating. You, you mean the, uh, the pathogenesis theory? Yes. Yeah. Um, there's 
several uh, theories on uh, pathogenesis or etiology. And I tend to uh, separate the pathogenesis uh, from uh, pathophysiology. I mean, pathology is essentially once the, the, the disease is there mm. and how it actually evolves and how it actually causes uh, symptoms. Um, the etiology or pathogenesis essentially uh, uh, deal with the, the cause of the disease, how it actually uh, um, makes the disease occur in the first place. There are several um, um, theories on the pathogenesis of endometriosis. The most uh, and most widely uh, accepted one is the um, uh, Joe, uh, John Sampson's uh, American pathologist who proposed in uh, uh, 1927, uh, he think that the, the disease is actually caused by the uh, retrograde menstruation because actually the normal route for uh, the um, uh, uh, the, the, the menses to, to come out is actually from the vaginal route, but somehow the the um, uh, the retrograde menstruation is that actually somehow the, the menstrual debris they actually regurgitated into the uh, pelvic uh, cavity and they somehow they, they, uh, they stay there, deposit to uh, some ectopic sites and then stay there and they actually develop into uh, endometriotic lesions. I mean, that's how it, the theory is. There are some other, some other theories, uh, for example, uh, metaplasia and also, but these theories actually is not less um, accepted and also uh, has less uh, support. Uh, but the, the retrograde menstruation theory, uh, in a sense, has been proven to be at, uh, in the baboon model, because it actually baboon like a, like it's like 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 um, a monkey that actually they like humans they menstruate the menstrual cycle is also 28 days and if you inoculate the menstrual debris twice into the pelvic cavity you can actually induce endometriosis in baboons yeah, right. so and and essentially this is this is the, the kind of a theory but the thing is, people realize that the retrograde menstruation uh, is seems to be ubiquitous among uh, mm. women of reproductive age. But why there's only uh, maybe 10% of them actually develop endometriosis? So there's a huge discrepancy. So then that then then that's actually the people wonder I mean, whether this theory is true or not. Personally, I think that this is. The theory should be true. Uh, I think that the one thing we can explain the um, uh, <clears throat> the uh, discrepancies because the uh, a different um, you know um, immune functions uh, and also maybe a different uh, uh, genetic uh, propensity and lifestyles. Uh, for example, um, if you eat uh, consume a lot of uh, high fat uh, food. And then actually that will increase the risk of developing endometriosis. If you're under a lot of stress, um, then you're also in uh, right. increased risk. So, yeah. so is it one of those cases where it's um, necessary but not sufficient to induce right. the disease. Right, right, yeah. right, 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 right. Yep. Okay. Now to help frame your your model, um, you have described the. The as you said, the pathophysiology, so the, the actual development of the disease at the, the cellular level. I think this is probably important for our listeners to understand, to therefore understand your proposal. So can you step us through, um, and this might need some conversion to more layman terms around the, the cellular changes that occur in the endometrial tissue in endometriosis? Yeah, of course. And uh, there are currently about um, uh, thirty over thirty thousand uh, publications. If you search the Medline, uh, Medline are uh, using endometriosis as a search uh, phrase, and that, you know that's a lot. Lots of research going on, clinically basic research, and if you, if you read all this paper, you will come that well. You know, scientist A says that this is the this is the case. That seems to be true. I mean, that the study is valid. And scientist B says the you know there's another gene. So it's 
it, it's it comes to a situation just like the you know the, the, um, there's a very good fable about uh, you know the six blind men and the and the elephant and each uh, blind man you know told a certain truth but not the whole truth um, so uh, the the analogy is that essentially you know each you know, most of the reported the, the studies are actually probably true um, to a certain extent, but we seem to lack um, uh, essentially a big picture. We see we see leaves, twigs, or branches, uh, or even trees, but we don't have any idea what the forest looked like, and that's essentially the thing. Now, what I actually realized is actually you know the um, uh, the hallmark of inumitrotic lesions is that it's just like the utopic uh, lesions, the, the, the normal uh, uterine lining, is that it bleeds uh, every month. Now, it, essentially, we, we call it, it, uh, it bleeds uh, uh, cyclically. <clears throat> so in this case, uh, bleeding is, uh, is a quintessential sign of tissue injury. So once there's a tissue injury in all organisms, either it's animal kingdoms or even in plants, there's an evolutionary conserved mechanism for kicking essentially to engage um, tissue repair so that uh, they, they will ensure the organism to at least to survive and also to reproduce. So that's universally true. So there's once there's a tissue injury, there'll be tissue repair. So what I think this is essentially, this is the repeated tissue injury and repair. That's essentially how I viewed the, the fundamental uh, feature of uh, endometriotic lesion is. So, uh, and with this, uh, the first thing we, we, we found is the, is the, uh, the, 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 the platelets actually plays a very important role. Now, in wound healing, there's another uh, research area. Um, actually, it's been well studied, um, especially dermal, uh, the skin uh, uh, wound uh, re repair is actually well researched. And essentially, there are four phases of tissue repair. Uh, essentially, there's a, there's a hemostasis, essentially try to stop the bleeding. And then there's inflammation, and then there's also uh, proliferation, essentially try to produce more uh, cells to mend the, um, the, the wound. And then the, um, the last phase is the remodeling, essentially try to you know, make it the, 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 the wound structurally uh, uh, sound, at least not as good as the original one, but at least it's actually it's, it's functional. But if this repair process go array, then um, either it could be the uh, chronic wounds, like the um, ulcer, uh, the patients with, like uh, patients with diabetes, that the, the wounds will never heal, or it could be the fibrosis. And for example, lung fibrosis, heart can, can be fibrotic, kidney, liver, uh, even skin um, can uh, have uh, fibrosis. That's excessive. That's usually caused by prolonged or, or persistent inflammation or, or, or repeated uh, tissue injury. And if you apply to this uh, endometriotic uh, contest, you can see that it's at one time we have repeated tissue injury and repair, and then you will see that eventually will lead to uh, fibrosis. Now, for normal endometrium. The repair process is essentially scarless; it's, it leaves no fibrosis. So, but in um, ectopic endometrium, that's some endometriotic lesions, and because uh, it's not exactly as the utopic endometrium, it eventually will cause uh, fibrosis. And, and in this process, we actually identified three important uh, molecular processes. One is called epithelial mesenchymal transition, that is the epithelial cells, the, the endometrial epithelial cells, they somehow become 
uh, uh, mesenchymal cells. That's actually the stromal cells. And, and the stromal cells, individual stromal cells, can also become myofibroblast. And that's the um, effector cell. That's the most important cells uh, in all fibrotic conditions. For example, all the you know, lung fibrosis and kidney fibrosis, myofibroblast actually secrete a lot of um, uh, collagens that actually make the uh, tissue uh, uh, harder. And if you, uh, <clears throat> these uh, myofibroblasts continue to, uh, you know, uh, develop, they eventually become uh, smooth muscle cells and or looks like the smooth muscle cells. And that actually can explain um, it is uh, some of the phenomenons reported in the 2000, uh, around the turn of the uh, century, I found that these, some of the, um, uh, uh, some form of images, for example, uh, deep endometriosis, uh, when you looked at it in a microscope, you see a lot of the smooth muscle-like cells. And these patients actually experience more, more severe pain. And that's actually how things go. And you also see lots of uh, fibrosis. So these three molecular processes essentially captures the, I think it's, it's the essence of the natural history of endometriotic lesions. And wow. with this, yeah. So, okay, yes, thanks for that. Um, just to summarize, so you, it's like this unsuccessful um, wound healing that obviously occurs frequently every 28 days or so. And the, the, there's some cells that are susceptible in the endometrial tissue that essentially change um, phenotype to right. more, more proliferative and, and fibrotic tissues. Right. right. And along this way, you you can see that the uh, there's several important concepts. For one thing, the cell identity is actually dynamic. They're not static. They can change. Right. And this is actually can explain why uh, we see uh, constantly in, in um, publications there's a lot of uh, controversy uh, um, you know, reports. And simply because they, they, that's a lot of people treat cells uh, as immutable. That's actually not true. They're actually dynamic. They are they're changing constantly. And second of all, uh, the lesional microenvironment is very important. So just like, you know, you know fantastic uh, crime that you need not only need uh, masterminds, you also need some uh, aiders and abettors so, so to, to pull it out. Yes. Um, it's a nice analogy. And I was, yeah, wanted to ask about the, the microenvironment. So, from my um, short look at your, lit your research, it seems like platelets and sensory nerve fibers to me jumped out as some of yes. the, the key players, which probably our audience. Yeah are less uh, familiar with linking platelets and, and nerve fibers to endometriosis. Can you describe how they're aiding and abetting? Yeah. Um, first of all, I mean, it seems because, because it's, a, it's a wound, that, that actually, when once there's a wound uh, in all mammals, actually, um, then the first uh, uh, type of cells actually come rush to the, the wounding site is platelets. Of course, then that, unlike other cells, Platelets actually a nucleic. It doesn't have a nuclear, but nonetheless, it actually has the, all the machineries, you know, to to, to secrete, uh, you know, mRNAs and also they, they can secrete all the uh, biomolecules to um, you know help the um, stop that the bleeding to make a uh, essentially a clot and also uh, to recruit other uh, immune cells. For example, macrophages, neutrophils, etc., and that actually will cause a chain of effects, and then that will, will you know, essentially set things in, in motion. And so the first thing, well, I think it's, it's it's a wound. The platelets must um, have a role. Um, of course, I was also intrigued by the um, uh, uh, traditional Chinese uh, uh, medicine that um, because it has been. Uh, in China, there's a lots of hospitals and physicians. They actually trained in the traditional Chinese way. They actually this uh, they diagnose in the in a, in, a, in their own um, um, 
uh, uh, parlors that they actually, did, you know, they have owned their language essentially, the jargons. And they essentially think that the, although they don't have a name for uh, endometriosis, adenomyosis, but the, all the symptoms, for example, infertility and uh, dysmenorrhea, um, all these things, they call it, um, no, they think that all these things are actually caused by the quote unquote blood stasis. And that's a normal, modern uh, uh, medical policy as, as actually the coagulation. So in this case, um, we, uh, you know, I think that platelets may, may have a role. And it turns out that, that actually platelets also played a very important role in uh, immunity. And so we hit it upon and we demonstrated, yes, platelets does uh, um, play a very important role. They actually, once they actually, they are released from uh, injured uh, vessels, they actually, they um, activate it and also they aggravate it. And they actually release copious amounts of over 300 different molecules, growth factors, and among them, that's actually one of, one of the, the, the uh, growth factors is called transforming growth factor beta one. And it is um, a molecule that actually can facilitate uh, epithelial mesenchymal transition, fibroblasts, myofibroblasts, transdifferentiation, and also a smooth muscle metaplasia. Essentially involved all these um, uh, uh, de- lesional progression. Wow. And you've done some research on some um, traditional Chinese medicine herbs in animal models of endometriosis that are quote unquote the the, the blood stasis herbs. Right, actually, um, because uh, if if we use use a kind of a concoct uh, concocted is the yeah the herb is actually will be very complicated, and I think that the, the best way to, to do it is to use some um, you know um, uh, <clears throat> compound with known uh, you know chemical uh, properties and, you know, just like the um, quinine, you know, that to, to cure uh, um, uh, malaria or um, t- um, some some other, you know, even uh, aspirin is actually, mm. is derived from, uh, you know, uh, willow trees. And so in this case, we, uh, we actually looked at all these um, uh, um, herbs and uh, the several um, uh, compounds actually uh, are known to be antiplatelet or anti-coagulatory. Uh, uh, for example, um, um, <clears throat> angiographolite, which is actually turns out to be antiplatelet, and also it's um, uh, NF-CoBa-B inhibitor, and which is a uh, plays a very important role in uh, inflammation, and also uh, angiogenesis and all these things. So it turns out actually we actually used it. Um, uh, because actually there's a, a OTC uh, drug in in China um, for uh, that contains the um, angiographolite. We actually uh, give it to patients uh, with adenomyosis, which is actually another form of, uh, used to be called um, internal endometriosis. See, the, instead of the located outside the uterine cavity is actually say, within uterine, it's actually under the um, um, mitrum. And it turns out actually is for some uh, some patients, at least actually is very effective. But some for other patients, it actually is not effective. And uh, it seems to be reflected by the endometrial uh, uh, expression of the NF-CoBa-B. So it's actually right. some, some of the things we, we, uh, we did, but we actually didn't uh, pursue because clinical trials uh, takes a lot of energy and resources yeah okay so just to thank you um to summarize that part with the the endometrial cells have this propensity in endometriosis to transition to these fibrotic cells and it seems part of it seems to be fueled by the mediators released by these (coughs) activated platelets uh and there's a suggestion here that um antiplatelet therapy such as um, some traditional Chinese herbs can potentially mitigate some of that. Right, right. And you mentioned the other one that uh, I've picked up from your research, um, which is probably less linked 
for many people in many people's minds is the role of um these sensory nerves that in a, in the micro environment seems to also contribute to the pathogenesis can you can you describe the role there yeah I, um i think that the actually uh, at one time uh, because it's well documented that the um lesions are actually uh, what they use the term hyper innovated what it means is actually in endometriotic lesions, they seem to have uh, abundant uh, nerve fibers. And some of these nerve fibers are actually turn out to be sensory nerves that actually can uh, uh, receive, uh, you know, uh, pain signals. And that actually can uh, well explain the why a woman with endometriosis, they tend to report, uh, you know, excessive pains. I mean, actually, pain is, is the leading cause that actually uh, brought these patients into a medical attention. Now, um, one thing that, that struck me is that you know, uh, I, people actually use the analogy. You know, essentially, like like um, like in lesion, it's just like um, you know, it's it's a, it's a, like an organ or, or a functional uh, tissue. Now, if you um, use the analog, it's, it's it's a house. Now, in order to, for a house to be livable. It essentially requires uh, three things. First is actually the essentially the um, uh, roads. You can actually need to. I mean, that's actually uh, you 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 can deliver the everything that you you need food uh, to the house, and that's actually the um, um, for example the, the the blood cells, and you also you need uh, drainage. You need uh, you know. Um, you, you need uh, some of the things to, to take the waste out from the um, uh, house. And the third uh, uh, kind of necessity is the uh, communication so that you can make phone calls, you communicate with outside uh, uh, people, and that's the nerves. So in this case, um, uh, one thing is uh, I was thinking of, well, maybe uh, uh, the sensory nerves is not just, a, you know, they not act in a, in a one-way street fashion. They uh, they could um, actually uh, maybe they can secrete uh, uh, neuropeptides, uh, neurotransmitters, and that's that's actually also known. And uncannily, that uh, nerve fibers are actually essentially sensory nerve fibers are proven to be very important for wound healing. I mean that's another clue I got. And so I say, well, we, well, well, we can try it, and we can actually um, first we sever the sensory um, nerves around areas around the, the lesions, and see how actually it will develop. If the nerve fibers will play any, any role, then if you sever the, the nerve fibers, it will actually will uh, uh, hinder the growth of the lesions, and that's what we we got started uh, using uh, mouse models. And uh, lo and behold, yes, it did. Whether you see about the sensory nerves or the sympathetic nerves, it actually can um, slow down the lesional progression. And of course, the, the, the biggest slowdowns is actually we're seeing if you um, see the sensory nerves. And now the next question is, well, the sensory nerves, they actually secrete lots of uh, neuropeptide. One of the one is the uh, is called uh, substance P, which is actually the one of the uh, a molecule that causes pain, and so we can actually use the uh, uh, for one group of mice we can actually inject, give them extra substance P, and for other one we can use the uh, uh, inhibitor that blocks the action of the substance P, which is the uh, the one of the receptor for substance P is called the neurokinin receptor 1, or NK1R. And if we block it, and actually we found it, it does dependently uh, slow down the progression of lesion. So in this case, on the other hand, if you give them the extra uh, substance P, the actual lesion grows more fibrotic, and they actually um, displayed uh, behavior that's consistent to be uh, more severe pain. So that's 
which actually we also did some in vitro experiment that essentially you know tried to uh, give extra um, um, evidence. It turns out these um, uh, neuropeptides actually uh, uh, do uh, um, facilitate all these uh, um, epithelial mesenchymal transition, fibroblastoma, fibroblast trans differentiation, and smooth muscle metaplasia, and produce lots of uh, collagens. So essentially, we, we nailed it down. And along the way, we established the first mouse model of deep endometriosis, which is the um, it's a model that actually can mimic uh, uh, um, you know, one uh, uh, most severe form of uh, endometriosis because of highly fibrotic, uh, highly um, <clears throat> innovated, and uh, lots of adhesion. So, and one of the uh, colleagues, uh, my, my colleague in, in Belgium, he, he told me he has tried over 20 years, uh, but uh, to no avail. So. Wow. So that's a, that's a, that's a very uh, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating mechanism. So can I just um explore that so that the sentry nerves as I un- traditionally understood it was more a one-way street where it's sensing the microenvironment and sending signals up to the the central <laughs> nervous system. So and our previous podcast was on this inflammatory reflex which we'll get to in a moment where the parasympathetic nervous system senses the any disturbances in homeostasis and there's this reflexive anti-inflammatory response. Does the sympathetic nerves, do they, is it too simplistic to say there's um, afferent and efferent, like going to the brain and back down the brain neurons? It sounds like the sensory neurons are like a, a two-way street where they both sense the microenvironment, detect yes. inflammation, yep. and then they secrete these pro or anti-inflammatory molecules. Yeah, they're, they're actually both of the efferent the nerves and also the efferent nerves. They actually, both are actually somehow uh, involved. Uh, because in in, uh, uh, in mouse uh, with the, we induced adenomyosis, we found that the uh, the um, the inhibitory, the pain inhibitory pathway seemed to be impaired. So uh, we actually did some you know staining in the brain uh, sections, and we found that that yeah. One of the, uh, the a, essentially GABA kind of pathways seem to be impaired. So not only they have been uh, they have been um, hyper innovated, they have uh, increased nerve sensory nerve fiber density, but also in terms of the uh, the, 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 the another another way around the inhibitory pathway, they seem to be impaired. So in this sense, um, um, people well. Mouse with with inducing pneumocystis or adenomyosis, they seem to um, you know more sensitive to uh, obnoxious or maybe uh, pain stimuli. Right. It, incredible how this is um, tied into wound healing, but it makes sense about sensing and trying to um, get the right tone, I suppose, of uh, inflammation and uh, anti-inflammatory properties. So right. I want to move on now to your recent work which, as I said, we just did a podcast on this anti-inflammatory reflex. So um, how did did that previous work you just described, did that stimulate the thought around if there is a imbalance in the parasympathetic nervous system, this vagal tone or this anti-inflammatory yeah. pathway? Yeah. yeah. Can you describe that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, one thing actually that uh, somehow kind of uh, inspired me is that, uh, well, we, if, if I looked at all the uh, clinical trials using uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, they all failed. Um, I think that they, you know, now if we step uh, uh, back and, and, well, that could be several reasons. Um, <clears throat> for one reason, actually, um, if you have a direct frontal assault, that may not work. And, and also, inflammation is um, necessary for normal endometrial physiology, because once there's a, there's a after menstruation, there's a, there's a tissue repair, have to re- replace old, um, you know, uh, the uh, all the endometrium. The repair process needs inflammation, and that's well known in all, uh, you know, wound healing, because one of the four important uh, phases of, uh, of wound healing is inflammation. So if you suppress inflammation, then 
the intermission were not um, properly repaired, and the end result will be the excessive menstruation or the or what we call heavy menstrual bleeding. And that's another kind of a big issue in gynecology. Uh, a lot of um, women actually, uh, you know, uh, have to go through uh, hysterectomy and because of the heavy menstrual bleeding. Now, <clears throat> so uh, the frontal assault is, is it may not be feasible. What about the other routes? One is, you know, it's the coagulation. Coagulation is intimately uh, linked with inflammation. So once you have an inflammation, somehow the coagulation also activated, and that's been well known. The other one is the uh, 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 <clears throat> cholinergic uh, anti-inflammatory pathway, or CAPE, that's actually developed about uh, 20 years ago. I mean, you, 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 you know that, right? Yeah. And by uh, Kevin Tracy, and they essentially found that, you know, somehow the, the, uh, the uh, central nervous system also senses the infl local inflammation, they can actually, you know, uh, and, and act uh, in other ways and, and try to control the, uh, or contain the inflammation. And in, in this case, the, the parasympathetic uh, nerves or um, uh, vagal nerves actually plays very important role. The vagal nerves is known to be a kind of a balance uh, between the uh, synthetic and, 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 and essentially takes care and, and make you Kind of a more calm, you know, uh, you know, in the kind of a healthy ways, and it's been documented in many, uh, you know, heart disease uh, people with heart disease, their nervous uh, <clears throat> nervous tones is actually um, was reduced. So in, in a sense, their vagus uh, nerve activity has been reduced. So with this, I thought, well, well, for those women with endometriosis. Do they actually have a reduced vagal term? I mean, that's the question. And this is, it turns out it's a very simple uh, study to do. We actually, uh, with, I think it's uh, 40 bucks, um, 40 US bucks, and we bought a, a kind of a handheld um, um, ECG, and actually we recorded, uh, you know, essentially heartbeats, and um, we calculated HCV and heart rate, um, you know, uh, Variability essentially, and we can, we with this data we can actually uh, to see how uh, the the patient vagal turn uh, as as compared with the uh, normal woman. It turns out yes, indeed, and these women with endometriosis they have reduced vagal turn. So then the next next question is, can you actually do something about it? Now, this one thing is that to use the um, uh, use the uh, vagal uh, stimulation, especially use the oracle, uh, essentially, the, um, you know, because the vagal nerves actually has some, some kind of uh, exposed that uh, only on the whole human body, it's only the two spots actually that uh, can be can be actually um, intact with the outside body. That's the, uh, that's the oracle. So in this case, uh, we uh, did um, some experiment on mouse with endometriosis, and we actually essentially stimulated the vagal nerves uh, using, um, at that time, I actually went to uh, Beijing. They actually, they've been doing wonderful jobs in uh, using the oracle uh, vagal stimulation to, to treat uh, insomnia and also depression. And then these exercises have been published and they seem to get very, very nice result. And I said, well, how do how you, you actually you, you do it and how you can actually do it on a mouse? And they told me, you know, that, so I asked student uh, to do it. It turned out to be very, very simple. So so the only thing that's different is the, the, the mouse, you have to be uh, use the um, anesthesia so, uh, to keep them immobile uh, so that you can actually uh, administrate, nice. uh, yeah, so uh, stimulations. And that's how, how it got started. The other kind of proof is that uh, once you do the uh, vagal stimulation, then uh, it's usually the uh, it's the um, uh, one of the cholinergic uh, receptor, alpha nico uh, nico nicotonic uh, 
nicotonic, nicotonic uh, uh, receptor, alpha-7, actually being activated. And that has a uh, known to be anti-inflammatory. And we, were, we actually examined the uh, uh, endometriotic lesions, adenomatic lesions, and we found that the uh, compared with normal endometrium, uh, the alpha-7 uh, ACHR, uh, the receptor staining is actually, of expression, is actually reduced. Um, so we actually did, uh, you know, agonists, we used the antagonists and uh, you know, mouse models, and we found that the agonists that, um, will actually suppress the lesion growth. On the other hand, the antagonists will facilitate or promote lesion growth. So that's another kind of a piece of kind of proof. Wow. Amazing. I might just quickly summarize. So you found that women with endometriosis have higher heart rate variability or or signs in their heart rate that shows a lack of parasympathetic tone. You then stimulated um, mice with in a uh, mouse model of endometriosis used a vagal nerve stimulator like a auricular on the outside of the ear and that diminished the lesions and yeah. then um, used some pharmaceutical... And progression. And progression. And progression. Wow. You can and, essentially see that the extent of fibrosis is actually significantly reduced. Wow. And then uh, found that women uh, in the endometrial tissue lack the alpha-7 receptor, which is sort of the what the acetylcholine hits in this um, cap pathway to to diminish right. Right. Uh, right. inflammation, right. and then finally, animal models where you used a, um, a pharmaceutical to inhibit or to promote the activity of alpha seven, also modulated right. endometriosis as well. So Precisely. yeah, bu- bu- building good evidence that there's a role here of the this um, anti-inflammatory reflex in women with endometriosis. And have you done some? Uh, hasn't been published yet, so I'm not sure how much you can talk about. But are you now looking at um, using uh, non-invasive transauricular vagal nerve stimulation in women with endometriosis? Yeah, actually, uh, another kind of a, a hospital in Shanghai actually they did actually practice uh, kind of com- combined uh, Western as well as the uh, traditional Chinese medicine, and they came to me, you know, the, the student and. You know, she wanted to do something that, uh, you know, maybe, you know, under your supervision and, and do something. And I asked her to um, to look at uh, adenomyosis. That's another kind of internal endometriosis. And uh, I choose this simply because uh, this disease can be diagnosed fairly accurately with imaging. You don't have to do uh, laparoscopy. So, and with this, you can actually, you know, once you have the uh, imaging diagnosis, you can proceed and, um, you know, give the, the patient some choice. Either you take the drug or you do the surgery uh, or you do the uh, radio uh, frequency ablation. Or here's another one. You know, it's, it's a kind of a experimental one. That is the, um, you know, vigor, uh, electronic vigor stimulation, which is, there's a, Tons of uh, machines, um, and they are very cheap uh, on the market. And one unit is actually cost about 120 US dollars. And but you can use forever. I mean, you can. Um, um, that's something that uh, has been done, and uh, the results seem to be very exciting. Um, although uh, the, the the choice of patients is also important for those who are, you know, the lesions. Uh, highly fibrotic, then it's uh, we have to be careful because personally, I suspect that for these lesions, that's you know, well into the advanced stages, uh, uh, it will be very difficult to. Uh, uh, one thing that's that's, that's uh, struck me is that uh, you know the students told, told told me that once they give this on to the patients, and the first thing that the response is oh, after a few days of use. And they say, my uh, sleeping um, <laughs> is improved dramatically. Right. So. Um, Interesting. Oh, so. Yeah, it makes sense. Seeing there's been <laughs> clinical trials on it as well for sleep and, as yeah. you said, mood disorders. All right. So just to recap, just um, <clears throat> so the 
I've identified three major novel pathways that you've been part of the discovery: the 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 platelets, and then the sensory fibers, and also the the cap pathway. Um, so probably a two-part question: Do you see a future where there's therapies that target these multiple pathways, and are there any other pathways that sort of are on your sort of horizon of interest? Uh, yes, I think that uh, although it's uh, it's it will be very difficult uh, for one person single-handedly to accomplish all these uh, things because the uh, you know uh, even the um, <clears throat> among a um, you know uh, vaccine actually it took forty years to develop you know mm-hmm. um, although it's kind of effective but it's actually it's been taken forty over forty years and. The drug research and development, or IMD, is actually, we, we all know, it's, it's a, it's a, the road is um, winding and it's also, also arduous. And so I think that the, it will take uh, all the research community's effort, especially those pharmaceutical companies, uh, funding agencies, to, 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 uh, to do a lot of work. But there are several pathways that I can envision. One is the anti um, Anti-coagulation. Uh, uh, I think it's a, it has some uh, promises, especially some of the compounds uh, derived from, uh, you know, uh, herbs. Um, they they seem to have a very good uh, safety profile for one, and because many clinical trials they they either terminated or withdrawn simply because of the um, acceptable. Uh, Safety concerns. Uh, actually, Bayer actually uh, last year, maybe the year before last year, they all actually terminated a trial on the on an anti-inflammatory uh, compound. And um, if we start from those compounds that are known to be, you know, pretty safe, then we don't have to worry about safety concerns. So we can proceed there, and they have some anti-inflammatory, anti-coagulatory um, <clears throat> uh, kind of properties, and we can actually, you know, start from there. The other one is the um, the um, uh, vigor stimulation, something that uh, we I think we should we should try. This is actually it's not expensive, and it doesn't do any harm at all. And for some patients, I think that the only downside it may be um, at worst is a several month of uh, delayed treatment. So I think that's a, it's worth a try. But of course, it, all these has to go through uh, more development mm-hmm. and also testing, uh, especially clinical trials. And the other third um, kind of a promising line of uh, um, kind of a development will be the uh, uh, Epigenetic uh, drugs. I think that one of us uh, students just finished a uh, uh, thesis. Uh, it's about um, <clears throat> uh, epigenetic uh, changes, and we actually published uh, in 2007, and then uh, two th- uh, 2012, I think, uh, the use of um, existing drugs called valproic acid, which is actually uh, a drug to uh, to treat. Um, bipolar and schizophrenia and to treat the adenomyosis and seem to be effective. It turns out that actually the uh, vapor exit uh, is actually uh, both anti-platelet um, as well as anti-fibrotic. And, and we actually have, do have more evidence to suggest that there's actually epigenetic aberrations exist in adenomyotic lesion as well as endometriotic lesions. And this is something that, that we should also kind of uh, look into but because by changing the epigenetic, uh, you know, to rectify the, the, the aberration, um, we can actually somehow, uh, we can uh, at least uh, slow down the, the, the progression or hopefully to reverse the uh, progression. So, Wow. So yeah, it sounds like going beyond. If we go beyond the hormones, the hormonal imbalance or the hormones, estrogen potentially driving endometriosis. There's many possibilities, and it's it seems like it's taking in all different directions, from blood to nerves to stimulating the, the vagus nerve, and now epigenetics. So it's it's really exciting, and um, 
yeah, I just hope that you can you get the collaboration and the, the funding that's necessary. Yeah, and at the time. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Yes. Speaking of time, I've, I've taken up plenty of time, so I've, I'll wrap it up. But I just wanted to ask, are there, um, are there resources? How can people keep in... A, abreast of some of this information that you know you can dive into pubmed and it takes a long time but... uh unfortunately no i i'm not a kind of a kind of a computer buff and uh <laughs> i don't have a kind of a kind of a dedicated website um and so um i guess the, the good good thing is that most of the publications are actually uh you know uh, kind of free to download and um i used to to write for the uh uh, World World Immature Society, you know, that they have a news news uh, newsletter, but uh, they don't they no longer published actually. But um, yeah, there's something I, I should do more, but uh, unfortunately, I haven't done much. So I, I understand. Oh, yeah. maybe I'll, I'll just have to um, get you back on in the future, yes. and uh, hopefully, we can even get yeah. you out to Australia soon, which is um, on the horizon. Sunwi, I really appreciate your time. It's been fascinating. Congratulations on all the stones you've unturned and hopefully, yeah, you unturn some more stones that find um, targets and those women that suffer this horrible condition can finally get some um, long-lasting relief. Right. Thank you, Nathan, for this opportunity. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.